1: Welcome to the Smirkanish Podcast for Independent Minds. So those who were tuned into my YouTube live early Saturday morning or have since watched my remarks on my YouTube page from Saturday morning, you know that I'm very eager to, in more expansive form, tell a story to the POTUS audience. It is a remarkable story that broke with a front page piece in the New York Times on Saturday the byline by Carol Rosenberg, who's been a past guest of the program, and Charlie Savage. He, too, has been here before. The headline is "Is this. Panel says it supports sending a 9-11 detainee to Saudi Arabia. I want to give you the backstory. It's going to take some time. If I can tell it well, it will be worth it. And not only will it be worth it, it poses a very difficult question. I think I'll get into the subject matter this way by saying that the events of 9-11 moved me significantly, didn't lose anyone in my immediate orbit, but lost a lot of my neighbors because the county in which I was born and raised is commutable distance to Manhattan and lost more than any of other Pennsylvania's 67 counties on September 11. Um, And just as an American, I mean, this, this was the seminal event of my life beyond the the familial births and deaths uh, deaths and divorces and and so forth it's it's a milestone event in my life and i know that many of you feel the same way that's what i'm trying to say so I paid very close attention to the aftermath of September 11, including the 9-11 Commission. I was an advocate for the creation of the 9-11 Commission. I remind you that the Bush administration, uh, the W. Bush administration, did not want there to be a 9-11 Commission. Denny Hastert and others uh, in the House and some in the Senate were opposed to the whole idea. I wanted to know everything and applauded the work of the 9-11 Commission as it was ongoing. In the end, I actually wrote two books about September 11, never seeking to, I didn't set out to really write either of them. They they just kind of evolved. One other thing I would tell you preliminarily is that I accepted zero proceeds from either. Both were significant work projects, uh, and I gave anything that I was paid to 9-11 charities, which is all documented. The first of the books was called Flying Blind, and it was published in 2004. And and it sprung from one particular day of testimony before the 9-11 Commission. It was the day that Condoleezza Rice, the former national security advisor, testified in front of the Commission, and she revealed on that day that a month before September 11, President Bush had received a PDB that was titled Bin Laden Determined to Strike, In the United States. I'm doing all this from memory, but I have a pretty uh, secure uh, recollection of of that day. In fact, I even know where I was when I watched the 9-11 Commission hearing that day. That was not what caught my eye. That was a big story, but it was not what caught my eye. And what caught my eye was sort of blown out of the news because everybody was paying attention to Condoleezza Rice saying, oh, my God, you know, a month before September 11th. President Bush got a briefing in Crawford and it said bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. No, it was something else. It was a question from former Naval Secretary John Lehman. He'd been Ronald Reagan's Navy secretary. He was John McCain's pick for the 9-11 Commission. And he had posed a question to Condoleezza Rice that went unnoticed. She had no uh, significant response, but it was the question that caught my eye. Before I go to justice, were you aware that it was the policy and I believe remains the policy today uh, to fine airlines if they have more than two young Arab males uh, in secondary questioning? Because that's discriminatory. What? What is he talking about? You, you couldn't pull out of line before September 11 more than two Arab males for secondary screening? So that if you knew, you know, that flight 175 was about to take off and there were five Arab males who for some reason were suspicious, you couldn't pull them out of line. What where does that come from? My pursuit of that question led me to write the book Flying Blind. I didn't set out to do it. I just doggedly pursued, like, where does that come from? And, in fact, there was such a policy, even though the DOT, Norman Mineta, the secretary, denied it as I was investigating it. And I was writing about it, and I was appearing on television, and I wouldn't let it go. And, ultimately, at the invitation of United States Senator Arlen Specter, I testified before a, a Senate subcommittee on exactly that issue. So... By now, I was familiar with the subject of airline security pre and post September 11. Not an expert, but quite knowledgeable because all of that I had read in the interviews, TC could attest to this, The, the radio program I was then hosting in Morning Drive in Philadelphia sort of became a proving ground for all of this because I was constantly having guests on the air to talk about airline security. By virtue of my investigation into that subject, I became aware of someone named Jose Melendez Perez. Jose Melendez Perez was an INS agent, immigration and naturalization service. INS would subsequently become CBP, Customs and Border Patrol. And I learned of Jose Melendez Perez, set out to meet him, interview him and eventually decided this is an American hero whose story needs to be told. Jose Melendez Perez was an INS agent working in the Orlando International Airport, who one month before September 11 stopped from coming into the United States someone named Mohammed al Katani, And I wrote about Jose Melendez in my first book. And I, I said, um, Jose Melendez Perez was a U.S. Customs and Border Protection inspector in, in Orlando, worked previously for the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, His service to the nation also includes service in the United States Army, where he served honorably for over 26 years, served two tours in Vietnam. He testified before the 9-11 Commission and said this. I'm a 26-year honorable veteran of the U.S. Army and currently on my 12th year as an immigration inspector now working for Customs and Border Protection under the Department of Homeland Security. My job requires me to know the difference between legitimate travelers to the U.S. and those who are not. This includes potential terrorists. We receive terrorist and other types of alerts, such as on-document fraud and stolen passports prior to September 11, but we all consider these alerts in a different light now. The national security element of my job means that training and experience is important. In my case, training for my job as an inspector has been threefold. And he goes on to describe his experience in Orlando, as in any other port, an immigration inspector can only return someone foreign back home for whatever reason under the expedited removal law. And then he explains what that is. He also tells the story that there are concerns in going about his job because oftentimes there are complaints that get lodged on behalf of governments whose citizens you stop from coming into the United States. He then says, in regard to the incident on August 4, 2001, which I am about to talk about, I note that another inspector on duty that day made a comment that I was going to get in trouble for refusing a Saudi national. I replied that I have to do my job and I cannot do my work with dignity if I base my recommendations on the refusals and admissions of someone's nationality. As I wrote in the book, wait a minute, stop the presses. Didn't he get the memo? Melendez Perez has just articulated a willingness to trust his training experience and intuition and his street smarts, even if it means offending individuals of a particular ethnic stripe. Now he further goes on. Here it comes. This is Melendez Perez describing events that occurred one month before September 11. This is his testimony before the 9-11 Commission. On August 4, 2001, I was assigned as a secondary inspection officer at the Orlando International Airport. My supervisor alternates inspectors between primary and secondary inspection, and on this day, I was assigned to secondary inspection. At approximately 1735 hours, I was assigned the case of a Saudi national who had arrived on Virgin Atlantic Flight 15 from London Gatwick Airport. As Saudis coming through Orlando to travel to Disney World are common, I had plenty of line experience with Saudis. In this particular case, the subject was referred to secondary inspection because the primary inspector could not communicate with him and his arrival-departure form, the I-94, and the customs declaration, which were not properly completed. I first queried the subject's name, date of birth, and passport number through the above systems with negative results. Subject's documents appeared to be genuine. A search of subject and his personal belongings also negative. Subject was enrolled in ident and photographed. In addition, a complete set of fingerprints was taken on form such and such. Through my INS training and military experience, my first impression of the subject was that he was a young male, well-groomed, short hair, trim mustache, black long-sleeved shirt, black trousers, black shoes. He was about five six and in impeccable shape with large shoulders and a thin waist. He had a military appearance. Upon establishing eye contact, he exhibited body language and facial gestures that appeared arrogant. In fact, when I first called his name in the secondary room and matched him with the papers, he had a deep, staring look.
0: Well, this guy, number one, he was, uh, he stared, you know, the way he looked at me when, when I went to the secondary room to pick him up. Uh, his body language, uh, the way he expressed himself, he kept pointing the finger at my face when he was in the speakerphone with the uh, interpreter. I mean, this guy' behavior, I mean, like I said before, you must have been there to see what I was talking about. This guy was, uh, the stare, his look was like he was ready to uh, to jump on me to do something. I mean, this guy was arrogant that was pathetic. I mean, this guy didn't have one thing in mind and was to come back, come into the United States no matter what. I thought that he was using an intimidating type of factor in order to see the backup from the interrogation and let him in.
1: As Jose Melendez Perez told the 9/11 Commission, what first came to mind at this point was that the subject was a hitman. When I was in the recruiting command, we received extensive training and questioning techniques. A hitman doesn't know where he was going because if he's caught. That way, he doesn't have any information to bargain with. My first question to the subject through the interpreter was, why was he not in possession of a return airline ticket? The subject became visibly upset and in an arrogant and threatening manner, which included pointing his finger in my face, stating that he did not know where he was going when he would depart the United States. The subject then continued, stating that a friend was to arrive in the United States and at a later date that his friend knew where he was going. He also stated that his friend would make all the arrangements for the subject's departure. Look, it goes on and on and on. The point is this. Jose Melendez Perez doesn't allow this man, Mohammed al Katani, to enter the United States. He turns him around and sends him back to Saudi Arabia. This is a really important part of the story. Jose Melendez Perez wasn't thinking Bin Laden or Al Qaeda. A month before 9-11, he didn't know about either of them. He was simply trusting his instincts. That's why the book that I wrote was called Instinct. By the way, shout out to Kurt Schreier, who was then a Ph.D. candidate at Penn, who assisted me when I wrote the book called Instinct. Jose Melendez Perez had never heard of Bin Laden or Al Qaeda, hadn't been trained in anything related to them. A month before September 11, his instincts were telling him that he had a guy who was up to no good. He called him a malafide. I'd never heard the word before. And against the counsel of colleagues worried about the political cloud of Saudi nationals, Melendez Perez turns the guy around and sends him back. OK, four months later. Mohammed al-Qahtani was captured at Tora Bora, where he was fighting with and on behalf of bin Laden. He had been with bin Laden just days before. When Jose Melendez Perez turns him around and sends him back to Saudi Arabia, he's able to find bin Laden. He was with bin Laden, presumably, on September 11. Because Qatani's data is now in a computer as a result of Melendez Perez's interrogation in Orlando, the Saudi trigger triggered further inquiry that eventually enabled the 9-11 Commission to recognize his intended role in the attacks of September 11. In other words, because they were now able to establish the whereabouts, the 9-11 Commission, of Mohammed Atta at different times before September 11, they were able to place Mohammed Atta at the Orlando International Airport on August 4th. He was there to pick up Katani, and but for Melendez Perez's intervention, the belief of several members of the nine eleven commission, including John May- John uh, Lehman, including Bob Kerry, including uh, Richard Ben Veniste, is that Katani was to have been the fifth terrorist abo- aboard Flight ninety three. In other words, United Flight ninety three, the flight that crashed in Shanksville going 600 miles an hour upside down and into a an abandoned strip mine, only had four terrorists aboard. All the other planes had five. 19. There were supposed to be 20. This is the guy that it was supposed to have been. And 9-11 Commissioner Richard Benveniste recognized what I'm telling you. Quote, Customs Officer Jose Melendez Perez stopped the 20th terrorist who was supposed to be on Flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania, probably because of the shorthanded muscle on that team, the passengers were able to overcome the terrorists, said John Lehman. Ben Veniste, when I interviewed him, said Melendez Perez is a true American hero, but for his actions, the Capitol building might have been destroyed on 9-11. Okay, the story then took an even more unbelievable turn. are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Okay. May, I think it was 2nd, 2011, SEAL Team 6 takes out Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. Investigative reporter Michael Isikoff, uh, where was he then? I think he was still at NBC at the time. NBC investigative reporter Michael Isakoff and others later pieced together, how were we able to track bin Laden to Abbottabad? You remember this part of the story. It was through a courier how did we learn of the courier? Michael Isakoff has reporting that suggests it's because of the interrogation of Mohammed al-Katani, that Katani was one of the Gitmo detainees, perhaps the first to describe the trusted courier who ultimately led U.S. investigators to Bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad. That courier, who was among those killed trying to protect bin Laden, reportedly provided computer and Internet training at Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's request to Mohammed al Qatani. A WikiLeaks release document on file about Qatani reveals that he had sworn bayat, a loyalty oath to bin Laden who personally selected the young Saudi for a special mission. And the document also details a post 9-11 speech by bin Laden that was delivered with Katani in his presence. Approximately November 25, 2001, Detainee saw UBL, Osama bin Laden, in Tora Bora, giving a speech to the leaders and other fighters. Bin Laden told them to remain strong in their commitment to fight and that it was a grave mistake and taboo to leave before the fight was completed. On December 5 of 2001, Katani was praying in a cave in Tora Bora with other fighters when bin Laden appeared and prayed with the group, and then 10 days later, he was captured. You can't get any more inside with bin Laden than had been Mohammed al Katani. He then gets captured February of uh, 2002, gets shipped off to Guantanamo, and all the pieces of this puzzle then get filled in. I'm looking at uh, Michael Isakoff's reporting for NBC right after bin Laden was killed under a sub headline 20th hijacker may have fingered courier. The identity of at least one of the detainees who provided early information about the courier who led to bin Laden could be politically explosive. According to a U.S. official that detainee was the notorious Saudi al-Qaeda operative and accused 9-11 conspirator Mohammed al Qatani who was subjected to some of the most humiliating interrogations at Gitmo. And then further along in the story, after Katani was subjected to some of the humiliating interrogations that later became public, he started to cooperate and for a while provided a wealth of information about al-Qaeda, including references to the Courier in question, said a U.S. official. So they hear his name uh, at some point after al Katani arrives in Gitmo and then they are gleaning additional information from ksm and others some of it is disbelieving is is is, is, is false information right. misinformation but, uh, but credit and, uh, to the interrogators that they must have been working such a mosaic that they are wise to the fact that it's false information well i don't think they know that uh, right at uh, right away,
0: I think it's only a process of time. There's another detainee named Hassan Ghul who was, uh, uh, apprehended in Iraq and he tells them this, uh, Kuwaiti guy
1: is very important and was close to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So there's... Uh, uh, you know bits and pieces coming in uh, uh, from various different detainees over time, and I'm not so sure we don't know the uh, we we know the the full story at this point. Uh, I think there are other pieces of this we're going to learn over time, but clearly it was a process. It was a lot like police detective work, really. Okay, so that's Michael Lisakov after the Bin Laden takedown, sharing with me what was then known about this guy, Mohammed Al Qatani. A very quick recap, and then. Why am I discussing it today? The recap is that an astute INS agent named Jose Melendez Perez is an American hero. Acting on his instinct, he kept out. Mohammed al Katani at the Orlando airport, August 4, a month in advance of September 11. Mohammed al Katani makes his way back to bin Laden's inner circle. He is fighting with bin Laden. He is in bin Laden's presence at Tora Bora. You remember the famous battle at Tora Bora when bin Laden was able to escape and go to Pakistan? But Mohammed al-Qahtani is captured because of the identification that Jose had done when rejecting his uh, attempt to come into the United States, the biometrics and so forth. They are able to figure out. American investigators are able to figure out, hey, this is a guy who tried to get into the United States. We have Mohammed Atta on surveillance August 4 at the Orlando airport. This guy was to have been the 20th hijacker. If he'd gotten in and been on Flight 93, maybe that plane would have reached its destination after 15 more minutes, either the Capitol or the White House. Presumably, this one added muscle could have helped repel the Flight 93 hero challenge. And that airplane could have made it to Washington, D.C. and killed a lot of people and really struck a blow to our government. So that's interesting. Then you've got the aspect that in the interrogation of al-Qahtani, information is forthcoming about the identity of bin Laden's courier that provides the information that enables the SEAL Team 6 raid at Abbottabad. And that is where the story had ended for the last decade now. Let me go back to where I began. Headline, New York Times Saturday. Carol Rosenberg and Charlie Savage panel says it supports sending a 9-11 detainee back to Saudi Arabia. Here's the lead. The case of a mentally ill detainee at Guantanamo Bay, Mohammed al Qatani, has long confounded the United States government. Suspected of being al-Qaeda's intended 20th hijacker in the September 11, 2001 attacks, he was tortured by military interrogators early in his detention at the American naval base in Cuba. A senior Pentagon official later determined that because of how Mr. Katani was initially treated, he could not be prosecuted. Security officials also considered him too dangerous to release, so he has remained detained for two decades. On Friday, the Pentagon said that a parole-like board had recommended repatriating Mr. Katani to Saudi Arabia to a custodial rehabilitation and mental health care program for extremists. The Biden administration is expected to send him there as early as March. The move followed a report last spring by a Navy doctor who concluded that Mr. Katani, who is in his 40s, should be transferred because he could not receive the medical treatment he needed at Guantanamo and was too impaired to pose a future threat, especially if he was sent to inpatient mental care, according to people briefed on that report. The Time story then goes on to talk about how Catani is someone believed to have been uh, scarred as a child from some type of brain injury and resulting schizophrenia that developed in him as an adolescent and that abusive interrogation and subsequent continued confinement had only aggravated that condition such that today they can't treat him at Gitmo. They can't handle his needs at Gitmo and they want to repatriate him to Saudi Arabia. This is really a tough story because I'm sympathetic to someone with mental illness. At the same time, this was to have been the 20th hijacker. This was to have been someone who would have been on flight 93 on September 11. Ramsey Kassem is a lawyer for Mr. Katani and a law professor at the City University of New York. He called the decision to recommend his client's transfer long overdue. He cited his client's serious mental illness, including repeated suicide attempts. Quote, Despite the severity of his illness, Mohammed doesn't pose a risk to anyone but himself, Mr. Kasem said. He needs psychiatric treatment in Saudi Arabia, not continued incarceration in Cuba. Katani is one of 39 detainees left at the wartime prison, is one of 19 who've been recommended for transfer subject to security arrangements. They make reference here without naming Jose Melendez Perez to what I've already described for you. Mr. Katani's notoriety is linked to To his attempt to enter the United States on August 4, 2001, when an immigration inspector at the Orlando airport turned him away, the authorities later discovered that Mohammed Atta, a ringleader of the attack carried out by 19 hijackers that killed 3,000 people the next month, had come to meet him there. And they then talk about the part of the story I've already shared with you. Katani had drifted into jihadi circles, was captured along the Pakistani frontier December of 2001 with a group of foreign fighters. He and those believed to have been the bodyguards of Osama bin Laden were sent to Guantanamo in early 2002. He was subject to two months of continuous, brutal interrogation by the U.S. military inside a wooden hut. At Camp X-Ray in late 2002 and early 2003, hour-by-hour logs leaked to Time magazine showed military interrogators placed Mr. Katani in solitary confinement, stripped him naked, forcibly shaved him subjected him to prolonged sleep deprivation, dehydration, exposure to cold and various psychological and sexual humiliations like making him bark like a dog, dance with a man and wear women's underwear on his head. They extracted a confession, which he later recanted. Mr. Katani's treatment was so degrading and abusive that the Bush administration official overseeing military commissions, Susan J. Crawford, concluded in 2008 that he could not be prosecuted because we tortured him. She told the Washington Post she refused to authorize his capital prosecution with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the self-described mastermind of the attacks, and four other detainees accused of aiding them. There's more to the story. It's posted in lead position at Smirkanish.com because I want you to have the time to, to take a look at it. But now that you know the whole story, what do you do with Mohammed al-Qahtani? What do you do with Mohammed al-Qahtani? If, if, I, if I were reading a story that said that Mohammed al-Qahtani was going to be repatriated to Saudi Arabia without the mental health aspect, I'd be irate. Because I know so much about, as I've just summarized for you, so much about the history of this guy, and about the heroic uh, story of Jose Melendez Perez. But when you then learned that he was scarred as a child with a brain injury, developed schizophrenia, like the, the 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 worst person to be subjected to the harsh interrogation methods would be this guy. Then again, given that he wanted to be or was trained to be the twentieth. Hijacker, Do you have any level of sympathy for him? Does it matter to you at all what his mental condition may have been pre-existing and may be now? What to do with Mohammed al-Qahtani? That is the question.
0: The Smirconish Podcast for
1: independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirkanish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.